I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. A lot of couples struggle with sexuality in their relationship. They sometimes are battling against old ideas or cultural expectations or roles and things that they just slip into and really don't know how to change. And especially when you've got a relationship where there's been some kind of a sexual betrayal, sex can feel dangerous. It can feel like it's something that maybe you don't even know how to talk about anymore, or maybe you don't desire it, and it can really derail a couple. My guest today is Dr. Barry McCarthy, and he is a very well-published author, researcher, clinician, and professor of sexuality. And he is someone that I respect tremendously, and he's just an incredible resource. And we, we talk about all kinds of things today in this interview, but specifically the, the, the big takeaway is about helping couples learn how to work together as allies, how to work together to integrate not only the friendship in the relationship, but also this erotic part of the relationship. And yes, if there's been a sexual betrayal, that part of the relationship was taken somewhere else. But what he talks about and what we discussed today is that couples can learn to work together as allies and really learn how to develop a style that works for both of them, even if there's been betrayal. That there's lots of ways to reintroduce healthy sex and cooperation and closeness. And Dr. McCarthy, we cover a lot of ground in this interview. There's there's a lot of different tangents and a lot of different ideas. So you'll you'll definitely need to stay with it and maybe bring a pen because there's a lot of great truth that he shares in here. And there's also some things that are really challenging. And as he says several times, controversial, things that push up against a lot of the conventional things that we believe, a lot of the automatic assumptions that we have culturally and personally around sex. And what I love about this discussion is it really does introduce a lot of things that you can think about and you can talk about with your partner and decide if it's something that really works for you in your relationship. One thing that he talks about a lot in his research and a lot of, and even in our conversation is that there's a much more expansive experience around sex and sexuality, intimacy and closeness in couples than we really allow ourselves to feel and experience. And that we don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to limit ourselves inside this bond, both individually and together as a couple for what's possible. And so many times we put false limits on these things out of fear or ignorance. And that just doesn't have to be that way. And so even if there's been betrayal, even if there's been things that have been hurtful, recognize that as you're working on rebuilding trust and starting to open yourself up to what kind of a sexual relationship you want to have with each other, Dr. McCarthy's work is so important. It's so central to helping you dialogue and open up and introduce a healthy sexual style for your relationship. Let me share with you a little bit about Dr. McCarthy, and then we'll jump into the interview. He's a professor of psychology at American University. He's a diploma in clinical psychology, a certified sex therapist, and a certified couples therapist. He's published more than 110 professional articles, 29 book chapters, and 14 books. Dr. McCarthy Berry has presented more than 450 professional workshops in the U.S. and internationally, and in 2016, he received the Masters and Johnson Award for Lifetime Contributions to the Sexuality Field. It's a real privilege and honor to have Dr. McCarthy on the podcast with us today. And I'm just excited for you to listen to this great conversation that we had about so many different areas. So let's jump right in to my interview with Dr. Barry McCarthy. Well, Dr. McCarthy, thank you much for joining us on this podcast. It's so great to have you here. No, it's really enjoyable to talk about how to prevent problems as well as dealing with problems. I'm a big fan <laughs> of prevention. Boy, you're not kidding. I know a lot of the times we end up at the bottom of the cliff and it is nice to help couples further upstream. So, so. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, one of the well, things that well, makes sexuality such an interesting field is the paradox. And that when sexuality is healthy in a person's life or, in a or marriage or other relationship, it plays this 15 to 20% role. It energizes their bond and allows you to feel desire and desirable. When sexuality is a source of conflict, an avoidance, it's dysfunctional, it plays an enormously powerful negative role. 
it can often destroy a healthy relationship. So that good sex cannot save a bad relationship, but bad sex can kill a loving relationship. It's an interesting paradox. Oh, yeah. Okay, wow. Well, I remember hearing the 15 to 20% thing when I saw you speak back in 2009 in San Diego. And I, I've wanted to ask you this question since then. Can you describe when you say 15 to 20%, what does that look like exactly when you say it consumes about 15 to 20%? Cause I, and I'll just say real quick before you answer that a lot of, I think culturally, a lot of us think that sex has to be at a hundred percent for a good marriage, right? It has to be just on and going and great and fantastic all the time. But this 15 to Absolutely 20% untrue. idea. Yeah. So when I think about healthy sex, and again, it is a kind of a prevention notion about what it, what it means to have a healthy marriage. A healthy marriage is basically about feeling satisfied and feeling secure. And the role of touching and sexuality is to energize your bond and allow you to feel desired and desirable. Now, one of the most important concepts that comes from my colleague who's deceased, Michael Metz. And Michael talked about the good enough sex model of individuals and couples. And that is you accept the multiple roles, meanings, and outcomes of sex. And part of that, the best sex is always mutual and synchronous. In other words, both of you feel desire, pleasure, eroticism, and satisfaction. That's the best kind of sex. But most couple sex and marriages is positive, but it's asynchronous. It's better for one partner than the other, and that's normal. But the most important thing to understand is even among the most happily married, sexually functional couples, loving couples, 5 to 15% of their sexual encounters are mediocre, dissatisfying, or dysfunctional. And one of the ways that you understand that it's a healthy marriage is where you can turn towards your spouse and say, that was pretty mediocre, right? Let's try to be sexual in the next day or two when we're more energized and more awake. But I still love you and care about you. This idea that if you don't have perfect sex, that means you're in big trouble is a terribly oppressive myth. Yeah, oppressive is a great word for that. Wow. There's a lot of pressure if if every time it just needs to be so amazing and there isn't room for, like you said, the spectrum. Right. With multiple roles and meanings. And, you know, especially for people who have jobs, who have kids, who have other responsibilities, this idea that you're always supposed to have great sex, like in the movies. I love movie sex, but it has nothing to do with real couples and real sex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this 15 to 20% idea is really that it's just, it occupies a place in a relationship like almost like an exclamation point in a sentence, right? You don't use them all the time, but it just adds a lot of umph and sort of like energizing the relationship. But it's, it really just kind of hums along in the background and has benefits that just serve the couple in the, in the everyday drudgery that we all have to deal with as part of life. But it's something that you can encounter or, or count on or you just look forward to. But it's not occupying a ton of space in your relationship. I mean, 15 to 20% is not very much. It isn't very much. That's right. But it, it is integral to your relationship. You look at each other. Here's a key concept of both intimate and erotic allies. There's so many people who look at their spouse, and this is more true of men than women, as their intimate ally, but not their erotic ally. There's a tendency in marriages to split intimacy and eroticism by gender. And that's a terrible mistake. That when I think about healthy sex, it balances three concepts that are quite different. One of them is intimacy, feeling connected, feeling safe with each other. A second is pleasure, giving and receiving pleasure-oriented touch. Not a performance, but but sharing pleasure. And then the third and the most controversial element is eroticism. And then often couples will fight about eroticism and what they mean by eroticism in a way that splits them rather than integrates them. And what you want to help them do is to integrate. That you want to, the man, the challenge for the man is to improve his valuing intimacy and pleasuring skills. The challenge for the woman is often to find her own erotic voice, and her own erotic voice is usually different than her spouse's erotic voice. You know, what the science says, and I really care about the science, is that when you talk about adult married couples, there are many more sexual similarities than there are differences. But that's not true about how they learn to be sexual. 
The majority of men learn sex as autonomous. He has predictable erections, predictable intercourse, and a predictable ejaculation. And he doesn't really need anything from his boss. Most women learn sexuality as more integrated, that they're not autonomous functioners. They need a connection, both an emotional connection and a touch-sharing pleasure connection. That's why traditional foreplay for most women causes inhibited desire. Because for most women, when she is passive during foreplay, she's expecting the man to turn her on. Rather than saying, I'm responsible for my own pleasure, my own orgasm, I want to look at him as we share pleasure and eroticism with each other, and his way is not necessarily better than my way. There's two things that really surprise people to hear. One of those things is when couples stop being sexual, when they give up on sex, especially after age 40 or 50, it's almost always the man's choice. It's his choice, not because he wants to, but because he's lost his confidence with erections and intercourse. And he says to himself, I don't want to start something I can't finish, so he avoids everything. And even women who do, don't value pleasuring and eroticism miss the loss of any connection. Because it isn't that they just stop intercourse, they stop sensual, playful, and erotic touch. Well, like the, for for the guy, a lot of that is tied into like him, you know, getting into intercourse. So much of that comes with him, like touching, talking, connecting, all that stuff. Even though it might be linear for him, or it might be more just his style, she's still benefiting from that. And so when he takes away, well, if it's all or nothing, or we we pass fail, there's no intercourse. The couple loses out on everything that came with that. Even the couples who stay together, in other words, they have a stable relationship but they don't have a secure relationship. They don't feel valued as, as spouses. They don't feel that touching and sexuality joins them. They're going to stay together, but they're going to stay together in a hollow way. They're going to miss that physical and emotional connection and that allows sexuality to thrive. One of the most valuable concepts, other than the good enough sex concept, is this idea that the essence of sex is giving and receiving pleasure. So it isn't intercourse or nothing. You can have sensual connections. You can have playful connections. You can have erotic non-intercourse connections. All of those are part of healthy, normal marital sexuality. This idea that the only kind of sexuality is intercourse makes no sense. Remember, one out of three adult women is never or almost never orgasmic during intercourse, that their pattern is often with manual, oral, or rubbing stimulation but they worry that I'm not good enough sexually. I'm not having the right kind of orgasm, which again is a demoralizing and alienating idea and scientifically total nonsense. Yet perpetuated through all the modeling that we have culturally and Mm -hmm. passed down in families or conversations with friends or just, you know, there's just so much programming that goes on around this that we just don't have access to good and, and accurate information about our own bodies. That's exactly right. And they don't talk to each other about it. You know, the worst time to talk sex is when you're nude in bed after a negative sexual encounter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> after a negative sex, yeah, no kidding. And that's the usually what comes out. The talk is either in a clinician's office, therapist's office, or the day before being sexual over a glass of wine or a cup of tea and say, next time we're together, I'd like to try this. I would like to try a sensual scenario we're not going to go to intercourse and orgasm, but we are going to exchange pleasure. And I want to be active in exchanging pleasure. I don't want to be passive. That's a good discussion. A good discussion for many people in terms of trying to emphasize shared approaches to desire, pleasure, eroticism, and satisfaction is for the woman says to the man, I like having intercourse with you, but my favorite way of being highly aroused and orgasmic is with rubbing stimulation or manual stimulation or oral stimulation. That's what, so my, the typical, if you look at Joe and Jane average, their typical sexual response pattern is Jane is orgasmic before intercourse and Joe's orgasmic during intercourse. But the biggest thing is they need to recognize and own their sexual pattern and what it means to them and what really works for them. Hmm. Now, you want to hear something controversial or should we rattle out on something else? <laughs> sure. Oh, always. Yeah. So one of the best examples 
of totally non-scientific and very non-helpful discussions between traditional men and women is about the role and meaning of eroticism. What is eroticism? What it, yeah. the, the way from the sexual point of view is it's high-intensity emotions and high-intensity sensations. And for most people, when they think about eroticism, it's what is called partner interaction arousal. In other words, you being turned on is a turn on for your partner. That's the be- one of the best kinds of eroticism. But when people think about eroticism, what they really argue, think about and argue about tremendously is about things like erotic fantasies and porn videos. What I say to my couples, maybe I'll take a breath after this for your questions and comments, but what I say to my couples is that the way to understand porn, I'm not pro-porn, but the way to understand porn is that it is an erotic fantasy year. It has nothing to do with real-life couple and real-life sexuality. It is a fantasy year where it goes wrong and where the real the essence of the problem is, is when you combine high levels of secrecy, high levels of eroticism, and high levels of shame. It's like taking a poison pill. It gets you into big, big trouble. And of those people, about 15% of males fall into that trap and about 3% of females. But that one of the things I say to people is you need to own your eroticism and integrate it in your desire, pleasure, eroticism, satisfaction cycle. So instead of my just babbling on, yeah. it would be helpful well, to talk about. Yeah, that's, that is fascinating. So again, I work a lot with couples that are dealing with the impact of unwanted or secretive pornography use in their relationship. And I mean, in essence, I, what I guess I'm hearing you say is that for a lot of these men that I work with that are struggling with pornography issues, a lot of it is, is disowned eroticism as well. Like right. they, that, that there's not been a chance to even like accept on their own. It's not even about what they're asking their partner or talking about it with their partner. It's just that their own shame and belief that they can't share that eroticism with their intimate partner, even talk about it or own it themselves. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that is correct. And there's all kinds of good research data that says for the great majority of men, their use of porn or other kind of eroticism is not about what they want to do in their marriage or what they want from their spouse. Fantasy is totally different than real life sexual behavior. People that can understand that and accept that, and the key element is feeling shameful. Shame is the worst of the human emotions when it comes to sexuality. And so much of sexual problems are about uh, shameful secrets. So if you understand that your partner is not asking you to be the way you see in an erotic video or in a porn video, that often really reduces the misunderstanding, miscommunication. And I mean, often people fight about porn and fight about eroticism, like the Republicans and Democrats. They call each other names. They don't understand what the role and meaning is and how eroticism gets integrated into marital sex. So when you talk about it, it's, it that, uh, that eroticism or that pornography is a, is a fantasy gear, can you explain that concept more in terms of when we shift into that gear of allowing ourselves to, to be erotic or to have an erotic self and embrace eroticism and then integrating that into marriage? Can you describe what that gear is and, and what you mean by that? I'll be glad to give my best shot. <laughs> and that is, let me, let's use a very common erotic fantasy. By its nature, all erotic, almost all erotic fantasies are non-socially accepted. That's part of why they have an erotic charge. So watching somebody being sexual or group sex or three or threesomes, most people do not enjoy the actual sexual experience. And he finds it just, it's disruptive for the person. It's disruptive for the marriage in most cases. Now, there's right. some people that that isn't true, but for the great majority. So they disown, they are afraid of eroticism and they disown it. Understanding that eroticism is not like an x-ray. It tells you what you really want to do. For most times, eroticism is about enjoying a non-socially acceptable behavior. You know, my favorite of all the stories, and I think this is a true story, 99% sure. There was a very famous woman who did a movie. Her name, her name was Julia Roberts, and the movie was pretty woman. This was like 30, 40 years ago when she was a 25-year-old woman. And one of the points that she made 
was that I know that 100,000 men a night go to sleep masturbating about the fantasy of having sex with me. But here I am in my early or mid-20s. I'm in a non-sexual marriage. There's not that bridge between what you want to experiment with, play with, and, and enjoy as a illicit fantasy and reality. You've got to understand that fantasy and behavior are different dimensions for most people. There is almost very, very little overlap. Now, again, there are some people who have a compulsive sexual behavior around the fantasy. But most mm -hmm. of the time, the fantasy is a bridge to get you more involved and more aroused. That's the healthy role of fantasy, not as a comparison, not as a behavioral comparison. Mm. So really, the role of the fantasy and the eroticism is it, like when you call it a gear, it's like it just it's a gear that like, you know, second, third, fourth gear, it just kind of can take you into a into a, a deeper state of arousal, but it it's but it's not reflecting not an actual desire. What's that? For most people, if they act out the erotic fantasy, you get a sexual dud rather than something that integrates sex and makes you feel better about yourself as a sexual person, a sexual couple. So for a lot of people, that's why then pornography or sexual affairs or prostitution or these things leave them feeling so much more ashamed, broken, alone, disappointed is because they're trying to act out or carry out something that really they don't even like technically want. They're just trying to increase, they're trying to just integrate some kind of eroticism, but don't know how to do it, especially relationally, right? They don't know how to. Well, again, you know, I am very pro-men, pro-women, pro-couples, and pro-sex. That's my value sense. If you mm -hmm. want to confront males on something, it is that they underestimate the role of intimacy and pleasuring. If you want to confront females about something, it is that she doesn't have her erotic voice. Her erotic voice is just an echo of his erotic voice. So she doesn't share with him emotionally and physically what causes, what allows her to feel pleasure, what allows her to feel playful, and what allows her to be erotic, especially in the marriage. That marriage is the way of trying to blend intimacy, pleasuring, and eroticism. I hope that doesn't sound preachy, yeah. but I think that is the challenge. No. And no, you know, you know why people yeah. like being yeah. sexual in their 60s and 70s? This is actually a story I use all the time, and it's a true story. This was a couple who I saw for therapy in, in their 70s. He was in his mid-70s, she was in the early 70s. And they'd been a sexual couple ever since they were like in their teens. And one of the things the woman said to the man is, I like having sex with you now more than I did in my teenage years. We're much better friends and lovers at 60 or 70 than we were. And actually, that kind of hurt his feelings at first. But she said, <laughs> be honest. When we were having sex in our 20s, you had show-up erections. Now, in your 70s, you have grown-up erections. You need me for your grown-up erections. My arousal, you learn to piggyback your arousal on my arousal. Our sex is more human and genuine than it's ever been. And I really do believe that. Wow. That is beautiful. beautiful. And again, yeah. that's a true story. Yeah. That yeah. made up story. Yeah, that's powerful. Can you say something, Jode? Mm -mm. <laughs> I love that. I love that that sex as you get older becomes more human if you allow it. Mm-hmm. And that it's more it's more interdependent versus like you were saying, more asynchronous or or autonomous where a lot of guys don't have to even think about it or work on it. And they they bring all that that kind of erotic charge into the relationship and then she's overwhelmed by it or has to just respond to it. Instead of when they're older and things aren't working as naturally or spontaneously, they have to now work as a partnership to create that, which is more native to her is what you're saying. Right. And the challenge for the man is to really embrace the concept of responsive sexual desire. That has revolutionized female sexuality. That rather than spontaneous desire being the right thing, which is what you've ever, always seen R-rated movies, desire is always spontaneous. In most people's real life, Sexual desire is responsive. You often begin an encounter at neutral. And as you are touched and touch your partner and feel more involved, then your subjective arousal goes up. And that's when you feel desire. This idea that real desire is spontaneous erections is, I don't think, true, especially not in your 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Desire is responsive for women and for men. And that's the thing that has revolutionized female sexuality. The concept that women have a right to their own sexual pattern, 
that it's not better to have an orgasm. You know, only one out of seven women in the United States have orgasm the way men do. They have a single orgasm during intercourse, not needing additional stimulation. Again, for that one out of seven women, that's her way, and that's fine. It isn't some other way is better. But for most women, sex is both responsive in terms of desire is responsive, but also that they have a different pattern of experiencing pleasure, eroticism, and orgasm than her partner. Very few, the average Jane average who feels good about sex in her life is orgasmic 70% of sexual encounters. She wants to be orgasmic 100%. It's easier to be orgasmic for true men and women with masturbation than it is couple sex. But to value the interaction and the different roles and meanings of couple sex, that's what feeds desire. Yeah. And so couples, so this, this idea about responsive sex that men need to learn how to do this as they get older. What, I guess, what advice or instruction or, or counsel do you have for guys in their twenties, thirties and forties where everything seems to just work automatically without much thought? What can they learn from this responsive thing instead of waiting until their body stops working to learn? Well, this? I tell them to learn it before it becomes a crisis. Yeah. To basically say to himself and say to his wife that your receptivity and responsivity is really good for me. My learning to piggyback my sexual response on your sexual response is a new chapter for us, and it's a good chapter. It's a better chapter. The sex skin is more human with us. And I don't look back on spontaneous erections and autonomous sex as better than intimate interactive sex. And I think it's a different gear, but it's a gear I not only can welcome, I can feel really good about that the quality of our sex is more genuine than human. And uh, what the woman usually says, I love the idea that you need it. Oh, yeah. You don't need show-up erections. Uh, Please, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was just agreeing. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea that a lot of times, I think just conventionally, we sort of think of sex getting worse as you get older, right? That you think of it as your sexual peak. I have a lot of couples that come in and, and... you know, there's been some marital problems, whatever. They're, they're having a, a low to no sex marriage in their 30s. And, and both of them are panicking because they're like, we're at our sexual prime and it should be the best right now. And and part of what I teach them is, I mean, I, I don't have the words for it, what you're describing. I love this and I'll certainly integrate this into my practice more in terms of responsive sex. But but this idea that it's now time for them to learn a different way of of being with each other that a low or no sex marriage can really introduce to them. It's like, it's almost like, oh, good, everything's not working automatically. And you're not just playing out some roles or just sort of acting on impulse now. You now get to be intentional about it. And it's a very different experience. And both aware, but the biggest thing, I mean, if, if you know who the guru is of female, of young women, young adult women and women in their 30s, it's a woman named Emily Nagoski wrote a book called Come As You Are. And I think she is exactly right for young adult women and women under 40. And that is pleasure really is the measure. That sex is really about pleasure. And that one of the things I think that Emily feels is that, that in fact, the kind of sex you have as an adult is quality-wise better sex. It might be lower in frequency and lower in total predictability but it's a more genuine, more loving sexual experience. And this idea that you're, that the woman, the major cause of one out of three women complain about inhibited desire. And they once felt desire and they've now lost it. And they blame it on age, they blame it on kids, they blame it on hormones. But probably the actual major cause of it is traditional foreplay, where she is passive and it's his job to turn around. It doesn't work that way. The real way that desire is about is about pleasure. It's the foundation of desire. And it's also her accepting that being able to say, I want this to be a synchronous, mutual, special night, or I'm okay with it being a 10 for you in terms of subjective arousal and a 7 for me, but I'm going to enjoy it. I might even enjoy it more than you're going to enjoy it. Or she has the right to say, this is not going to be an intercourse night. But let's make this essential or playful. So you have that genuine discussion about the role and meaning of sex. And you do it in a way, again, whether it's in your the clinical office or it's over a walk or a cup of wine, 
but you stay away from it's my fault, it's your fault, who's the bad guy here? Right. And both people showing up to take charge of their experiences. And you, like you're saying, especially the woman, because so much of the time she's in the more passive role, kind of culturally. Right. But I think what Emily Nagoski would argue with you is that that is a misunderstanding of male, female, and couple sexuality. Right. No, right. And I'm, I'm definitely not suggesting that that's ideal. I'm just saying that she, that this is the invitation. And the invitation is to have her use her voice and talk about it and take ownership of her own pleasure and bring that in and, and use it as a discussion point. And, and I love what you said. And I'll just emphasize this a, another time, which is please don't have this discussion when you're naked after a negative experience in bed. I think that's, I think that's probably some of the best advice I've heard in a long time. Because <laughs> so many couples, that's what it's on their mind. If you want to be more specific, and I hope I'm not being offensive, you know, I've heard this at least ten times in my clinic. I've now retired from clinical practice, though I still write and do professional workshops. But where the woman says to the man, "If you can't keep it up, why do you bother to stay alive?" That is really awful. Or the man oh, says to the can't. woman. I thought you were a new woman. Now that we've been married three years, I know who you really are. I never would have married you. That does such damage to the relationship, to trust. It's a good example of the destructive role of, in, of intimacy and sexuality in a relationship. I think the reason that more traditional couples have um, worried about this new approach to sex is they say it's going to break us up. It's going to take us apart not actually integrate and bring us together. That's what people's fear is. You know, I am not pro-affair. I want to be clear about that. But one of the things that happens with so many people is that they have that traditional battle about affairs, why you had an affair. And they assume you know what the affair is about. As you know from the Snyder Gordon Barton people, the first thing that they say is don't do something dramatic. Don't end the relationship because of an affair. Use the same language, create a common meaning that both of you can understand about the role and meaning of the affair in your life at this time. You know, the most common kind of an affair is a male high opportunity, low involvement affair. And by the way, that's also the easiest kind of affair for marriage to survive. The majority of marriages of survive affairs. The woman's affair is more challenging, but they still survive. The question is, are they going to thrive after the affair? What I say to my clients is you cannot change the past. You can learn from the past. It's important to process the past, but you don't get a duel. Your decision of whether to stay together or not should be about whether you can create a respectful, trusting, intimate bond where sex plays that healthy 15 to 20% role. Let me say another controversial thing. Again, if I get too controversial, stop. And that is you can never compare marital sex and affair sex. Affair sex is always more dramatic and intense. It's breaking boundaries. It's all about secrecy. It's all about drama. The thing that is healthy in comparison is marital sex before and after the affair. And it's a challenge for couples who are healing, who are going to heal and grow, grow with that affair, is they want to have a better trust bond and a better sexual couple sexual style than before the affair. This is not to encourage people to have affairs, but that's what the real challenge is. How do you create a new trust bond, you can't resurrect the old one, that really is a better trust bond that allows you to feel more secure? And how do you develop a new couple sexual style that does integrate intimacy, pleasure, and arousal for both of you? That's the challenge. And again, I hope that's right, not too right. controversial, but I really believe that for most couples. Now, I see that a lot with the couples that I work with, which is it really does reset the conversation around the role of trust, intimacies, sexuality, all this. It really creates a new conversation that they probably wouldn't have had in the same way had this betrayal not happened. And like you said, like you wouldn't wish this on a couple, but I would wish those conversations on couples. And sometimes that's the only way they can get to them. And I there's other ways, of course, and couples can listen to this conversation we're having and have the courage to do it. But you're often more motivated from pain, unfortunately, than we are from just an idea. Well, if they can break the power struggle about you're the offender, you're the victim, that is not a healthy way of talking or thinking about it. 
I love Snyder Gornenbachel's words about the involved partner and the injured partner. And what is the genuine meaning of that for their marriage? I think one of the things that really shocks so many men is understanding that their spouse's affair had nothing to do with them or the marriage, that she had lost something of, of her voice, and the affair was her way of us regaining her voice. Now, I, I agree with you. There would have been probably better ways of, of gaining that. But the affair, you can't change the past. Again, you can learn it and process it. You have powerful changes in the present and the future. Yeah, that's so hard. It's so hard because there's, there's, in the case of an affair, there's obviously an offense. And so there is an offender and then there is a victim. I mean, there, there is this dynamic, at least initially, right? Where you did this to me and I'm hurting. And so in terms of stabilizing and rebuilding trust, I, I do believe, and I'm curious what you think about this, but there has to be a period where there's some ownership, truth, accountability, stabilization. But you're saying long term for the healing of the relationship, you can't stay in those roles. In fact, they're destructive roles. And I would say even at the beginning, you shouldn't be saying. But what I do think you need to do, and what Snyder Gordon Brockham emphasized, in practice, and people don't do enough of this, and that is the, per- the involved partner, the partner who had the affair, whether it's the male or the female, writes a letter to the spouse and says, this is what the affair is about. This is what I learned. This is what I want to do going forward. And ask the spouse, and I caused you pain, and I want to take responsibility for the pain. It wasn't my motivation to cause you pain, but I did cause you pain. But I think the offender-victim model is not a good model for healing. I think a better model for healing is saying, this is what I learned about myself, about relationships, about sex, and about you. And I want to implement that. If we're going to stay together, I want to implement that in a way that I feel more securely bonded to you than I did before the affair. That's the challenge for a fair recovery. And what I would say in terms of this 15 to 20% role is you want to find a new way of being a sexual couple that integrates intimacy, pleasuring, and eroticism in a way you hadn't before the affair. Again, I'm not encouraging you to have an affair. I'm saying that is the ta- that is the learning task for you. And the more you stay in the victim, perpetrator, model, I think it subverts the, the movement. You it goes back to what you were saying about even like the traditional foreplay, which is it keeps one person in the active role and the other person in the passive role. And that becomes like a, you know, maybe a relational manifestation of that same dynamic outside the bedroom, which is it's your job to help me heal. And I'm just going to passively wait for you to do, you know, become whatever healthy, perfect, <laughs> whatever the expectations may be. But there's a very, there's a real active ownership on both parts to say, what is our new style going to look like? How are we going to show up in this relationship? What have we learned from this? And that takes a ton of guts. And healthy, That's a hard healthier thing people and a healthier couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Healthier people, healthier couple. Exactly. And you know, yeah. one of the realities of healthy marriages, mm-hmm. one of my favorite stories, is that you love your spouse for who he or she really is, not in some romantic view of them. You know, before we got married, Emily and I have been married for a long time. We've been married for over 55 years. And before we got married, I told her about my learning disability, about how bad I am at technology. As the world has become more online, it's become much more of a deficit. It's a really big, big, big problem. And I really love the fact that she loves me and respects me, even though I have this terrible discipline. And when we got married, Emily was five feet tall. And we said to each other, it's going to be a real struggle to have a successful marriage that is satisfying, secure, and sexual, but we're going to try to pull it off. And she said, if if we can pull it off, I make a promise to you, I will grow. She's now four foot eight, nine and a half. (laughs) people make these promises that say you you should love me because i'm perfect you should love the person for who they really are and accept their vulnerabilities at least that's my take for yeah absolutely we we just had a another podcast guest recently talk about this very thing in terms of rewriting some of the cultural scripts we have around what marriage is really supposed to do for us versus what we do for marriage and for our partner and you know, this really ties in nicely with what we're talking about in terms of sexuality. Instead of two autonomous people coming in, trying to 
you know, play out some role or just go on autopilot. Like this is a really high level intentional active thing that both people are doing to develop a style. I love that you call it a sexual style that couples can not only be aware of whatever they've fallen into, but then shape it into something that actually works for both of them in a mutual way. You know, this is controversial, but I really believe this. And that is for most couples, nothing is true of everybody, but for most couples, the best relational style is the best friend relational style. Sue Johnson has a wonderful line that says, I trust that my spouse has my back. That's a wonderful, wonderful line. But the best friend sexual style is not the right fit for the great majority of couples. Because for the great majority of couples, you've got to integrate intimacy and eroticism. And the best friend sexual style, you often wind up losing your erotic voice. You de-eroticize your spouse in the relationship. That's why you see so many couples who say, we love each other, but sex just doesn't work for us. They de-eroticize each other in the relationship. There's a sexual style called complementary couple sexual style, where you maintain your own sexual voice, but you are feel valued as a team. So complementary couples look like this. They keep their autonomy, their individuality, but they're well-bonded. Best friend couple sexual style looks like this, and you often shut down the eroticism and shut down the performance. I think that's a challenge for many couples to say what works relationally has to be tweaked about what works sexually. It isn't adversarial, but it's different. Is that too much gobbledygook or is that? It's fascinating because so much of the, again, I mean, I, I've trained with Sue Johnson and her team and so much of it, that, that secure attachment, the safety, the security can create so much just security that, that it's almost like to go off on a, I, th- I think Sue, Sue calls it, sex is a safe adventure, right? To go into eroticism and to go into this place from that secure base is the test. But a lot of couples you're saying don't leave that. They just kind of, it just becomes pretty routine and familiar and and secure and safe. And they kind of stay in this place. But you're saying they really want to have this 15 to 20% like energize the relationship. They do have to use that secure friendship and really take ownership of their own sexual voices. And that really puts them in more of a complimentary style. Right. And- Am I getting that right? Absolutely. And with the best friend sexual style, you can't have, you can't accept asynchronous scenarios. With complementary sexual style, it's okay that it's better for your partner than it's a better partner for you. It adds to the thing. The other thing that has always struck me is the difference between secure marriages and stable marriages. That in a secure marriage, you really feel love for who you are. You're known in love for who you are, including your vulnerability. And you feel valued that they're with you because they care about you as a person and as a life partner. In stable marriages, you're going to stay together, whether you should or shouldn't, whether you like each other or not. And I don't think stable marriages are really healthy for either individual or for the children. Secure marriages where there's a genuine bond is really healthy for each other and for a family. Yeah. And I'm guessing that some marriages probably move between, you know, feeling secure and good and things are tight. And then maybe things drop out a little bit or, you know, life events happen and you're thankful for the stability piece, right? The commitments there and you're going to kind of weather through that. But the goal is to get back into security and, and build that back up and have that, right? I mean, doing that long term as a strategy for stable is ultimately going to be diminishing for both people in the family. Right. And it's a bad model for your children. You don't want to, you don't put your, I always say this to adults, don't put your parents on a pedestal. Everybody has their strengths and vulnerabilities. Every marriage does too. But it's the difference between being a couple where the children look at you and say, they're a genuine couple. When they touch, they mean it, as opposed to a model where they only kiss goodnight and they don't mean it. They're going to stay together, but they don't feel valued. Talk about how a couple, you know, in terms of taking charge of their their sexual style and really starting to become this intimate team together where you're talking about men and women working as intimate and erotic allies, right? The intimacy, relational stuff, and then the eroticism and the sexual. Where does a couple start that to really develop that alliance? What does that look like? Well, I think the best time, again, to talk sex is on a walk or on a cup of tea or on your porch. 
But I think the real thing is where they try out a different scenario. That's what we do, like the best example of all the books we read for the lay public, it's called Rekindling Desire. And where they get a chance to say, let's have a sensual date. Let's make it a sensual week. We're going to put a prohibition on intercourse and orgasm, but we're going to really invite giving and receiving touch. And then two weeks from then, we're going to integrate eroticism and intercourse into what we've established. That we speak the same language about pleasure and intimacy. And we also, you know, one of the things that I learned that I really believe is most strongly it came from Bill Masters, who's sort of a grandfather of sex therapy. And he said, you know how you're sure that a man is cured of erectile dysfunction? That is, whether it happens once every 10 times or once in a year, when he doesn't have an erection sufficient for intercourse, he doesn't apologize, he doesn't panic. He said, let's stay together and have a good time. To me, that couple is in great shape. I think in terms of building it, it is this idea, I'm a big fan of this idea of sensual dates, playful dates, erotic non-intercourse dates. That you read about it, you talk about it, but the most important thing is you try it out at home. And I've had a fair number of couples who say, you know, you've got some really good ideas, but your idea about playful dates is one of the stupidest ideas in the world. I hate playful dates. And I say, that's fine. If you don't want playful dates, that's fine. But you've got to have a gear different than affection and intercourse. Whether it's a sensual gear or erotic non-intercourse gear, I don't, or playful, I don't care. But this idea that we only have two gears, affection and intercourse, that is not good for folks. Yeah, there's got to be a continuum. And like you said, you know, it's most people might be able to pull that off in their 20s and 30s when when everything just works. But but if you don't have those middle gears, then you're going to experience, you know, people are living longer. So you could experience 30, 40 years of a lot of like loss and disconnection if you don't have something in between just friendship and sex and intercourse. If those are your only two options, that's, uh, yeah. People do get divorced in their 60s and 70s, but that's usually not what happens. The most common time you get divorced is your 20s and 30s. Divorce rates go down with age. I think, though, what happens with, with couples, you know, the good news is there's solid science you can be sexual until you're at least 85. I think you can be more naive, but at least until 85. The bad news is that one out of three couples stop being sexual between 60 and 65, two out of three between 70 and 75. It's a very bad choice. And it isn't made out of awareness and communication. It's made by the man unilaterally. He says, sex is no good for me anymore because I feel embarrassed. I don't want to start something I can't finish. And I say to them, that's you're better off staying sexual than putting $200,000 into Fidelity Investments. It's going to improve the quality of your life. But the way you stay sexual is that this really embrace this idea of broad-based, flexible sex that includes sensual, playful, and erotic cares. I always love intercourse. I always love orgasm. And I mean that. I'm saying it because it's politically correct. But you can't define sex by intercourse and orgasm. You just can't. Mm-hmm. That's especially right. yeah, true in your 60s, 70s. But that's true in your 30s and 40s, too. Right. But it's a tougher sell for the younger couples, isn't it? That's Much right. tougher sell. <laughs> and it's basically, it's yeah. not such a tough yeah. sell for women, but it's a terribly tough I was going to say, I mean, the man for the says, men, but I think the women are craving that. Why should I worry about it? And I say, because mm-hmm. be, you want to be sexual as you age. They say, yes, and then wise men learn to be, learn these gears before they need to. It's good prevention. Mm-hmm. I love that. Now. I know you've written like 24 books, right? You've written quite a mm-hmm. few books. And in terms of couples getting started, if they're, if they're looking at their relationship, The Rekindling Desire is, is your book that really is, a, is about developing these, these in-between gears, about learning how to expand your continuum, right? That's, that's where couples are probably find. by far mm-hmm. our best book about couples who are having trouble with desire. Our actual best book, it doesn't sell well at all, but it's a really <laughs> wonderful book. It's called Enhancing Couple Sexuality. We wrote it about three years ago. That book is good chapters for men, women, and couples. Uh, there's good chapters about sexual minorities, special sexual issues. Okay. That's the best book in terms of prevention, in terms of really right. enjoying sex right. in your life. 
Yeah, and I'll make sure to put links to that book in in the show notes so that people have access to that as a resource. And then, and that your most recent book though is couples or sex for couples in their sixties and beyond, right? That's the most recent one. Your last book. The last book I'm going to write. Seventy eight. It's time to stop writing. But I, right. I, I really believe it. I, it's, I'm not hypocritical. I really believe that it's a very good emotional investment. And it's not just a good emotional investment for you. It's a, a good emotional investment for your whole family. You know, kids, even that. grandkids, understand the difference between a couple that is secure and a couple that's just been together for a long time. There's a tendency in our culture and many other cultures to avoid sexuality and aging, and that's a mistake. Right, yeah. So for, for kids, for grandkids, I love how you're saying that, for grandkids to be able to see that like grandpa and grandma have this spark or they have this connection or there's some like there's something really beautiful there to, to really normalize and validate long-term intimacy and connection and closeness. You just don't expect that, I think, a lot of the times from older couples. And but, I think know, there's, I you know, there's ways to do it. Human sexual behavior class at American University for 50 years. One of the things that most depressed me about teaching, I love teaching, of that class was that only one out of 13 people, students, believe that their grandparents are still sexual. And only one out of four college students believe their parents are still sexual. The message oh is that oh sex is for the young, the illicit, the new. And that's not a healthy message. Sex wow. is meant to be throughout your life. Right. And a more expansive definition of sex beyond intercourse. And so you said one out of 13 students believe that their grandparents are not sexual. One wow. out of, only one out of four believe that their parents still were sexual. And you know, at that age, being in their 40s and 50s. Right. Right. <laughs> wow. That is tragic. I, I love that we're having this conversation and that you're, you know, that hopefully we're going to just continue to try and educate people to recognize that lifelong sexuality in all of its beautiful manifestations is not only possible, but so good for the whole family culture. It just really, like you said, that that 15 to 20% can enliven and engage and, and support a couple in their relationship. It, it does trickle down to the rest of the family. It does. You know, it's interesting. Now that I don't write books, I do write blogs for psychology today. And one of the latest blogs was about the use and misuse of the word heteronormative. When heteronormative is used as a descriptive word that says 95% of both men and women, their prime sexual orientation is heterosexual. That's true. But when heteronormative is used as anybody who is not married and heterosexual, that means they're bad or deviant or it's a problem. That is a misuse of the word. Sexuality is not a zero-sum game. People thriving sexually is good for the culture even if they thrive in a different way than you thought. I think one of the things that has scared more conservative traditional people away from sexuality is this idea that if you're pro-sexual, that means you have to accept group sex, the swinging, you have to accept that uh, whatever right, is the right fan. That's been bad for the sex field. The sex field needs to be an inclusive field that says not only is sex not a zero-sum game, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to find your authentic sexual voice, your authentic sexual self, and live it out in a way that promotes your life so that it has that good role in your life. And that's true whether you're straight or gay, married or partner. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that. I I think in, in terms of the takeaway for a lot of these couples that might feel like they, they don't know how to integrate eroticism and friendship and all these different, what can feel like competing things. I mean, what I hear you saying is that like, you don't need to be afraid that this thing is going to run off the rails if you start to try and integrate these things and, and open up to it and embrace it, right? Right. It's yeah, not an adversarial relationship in between intimacy and eroticism. It's part of a whole. Right. Exactly. And that learning how to talk about them together as allies and working together to, you know, allow yourself to explore that and talk about it and, and have the courage to bring up, even if it feels taboo or scary allows you to decrease shame and to maybe learn something about yourself and your partner. There's just a lot of potential and possibility for deeper intimacy. And then, of course, more eroticism. And that kind of conversation is a long conversation. This is not something that you're going to handle in one conversation or one walk, but defaulting back to just traditional roles or just 
you know, some sort of a, a thing out of fear is, is really going to keep the couple stuck. Well, I think the thing that keeps people stuck more than any other emotion is shame. Mm-hmm. The more shameful, whether it's about affairs, it's about porn, it's about whatever, the more shameful you are, the more likely it is you'll continue the same self-defeating sexual pattern. Yeah. People who are more accepting make wiser emotional and sexual decisions. Shameful people get stuck in a dead end. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. Well, no, this has been fascinating. There's so much we could cover here, but I I think it's I think that I guess what I'm taking from this and what I really want my audience to embrace is going back to your point that sex in a couple's relationship is not a zero sum game. It's not pass fail, it's not intercourse or nothing. That there's this whole continuum in between friendship and intercourse that you have permission to explore, that you have permission and, and encouragement to talk about safely and to not be afraid of it, to do it without shame and to invite each other into this space to just see what you need and what comes up. And of course, there's fantastic resources that you've created to help couples guide through that, but to not live beneath your privilege of what's available to you as a couple. Right. And for many of your audiences are religious. And one of the things that is really important to understand is that the data says that religious couples do better sexually than non-religious couples. There's no reason. I think of most religions having that are pro-sexual because they are pro-loving and pro-family religion. So you, you can use that as a uh, positive resource also. Now, are there religions that are shame-based and punishing? Sure there are. But the majority, for most people, religion is a positive resource in their lives and in their family. I love that. They can all work together. That it's and I know that that's a message a lot of the times. I know in my faith, a lot of times, you know, there can be this feeling that there's these forbidden areas around sex and sex outside of marriage and things like that, that feel like in some ways it can almost kind of contaminate the whole idea of, of being too sexual or, or being too interested in it or, or the eroticism. And inside the boundaries of commitment, fidelity, monogamy, there's so much room to play in there. If you allow yourselves that, you don't have to be afraid of it. Like so many other learnings, there are healthy learnings that transfer very well into adulthood, including about religion, hard work, family, that kind of thing. But there are some learnings that do not transfer well into into adulthood. And one of the traditional things that has to be challenged is this idea is that sex is violating boundaries and will cause damage or pain. It certainly can. You need to be aware of that. But sex is not about damage and pain. Right. Right. Yeah. That is a hard transition for a lot of people to make, you know, where it's like, no, no, no. And then all of a sudden it's go, go, go. <laughs> That's a huge leap for a lot of people to make. And a lot of uh, something I think a lot of couples have to unlearn individually and together. Well, one of the things I often say to couples, a very young couple who've been married less than two years, is I say to them, it takes most people somewhere between six months and two years to develop a couple sexual style that's the right fit for them. Mm. Give yourself the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I love that. I love that that permission of six months to two years to develop your couple's sexual style. And I think, you know, then that just get, keeps getting refined and, and discussed. And as life happens, you keep, re, you know, re-discussing it and so on. But to But to not put that pressure on you that you're supposed to have this synchronous, perfect kind of union and have it all just work really well early on is, again, that's Hollywood. But sexuality by its nature is anti-perfectionism. <laughs> so true. So Trying true. to be the perfect sexual person, perfect sexual couple is really a self-defeating strategy. Yeah, that's so validating, so encouraging. It feels so true. You know, I love that. Well, I, uh, I could talk to you all day. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for taking time. I look forward to sharing these resources. Your work has been so helpful in my practice and also with us personally. And I, we just appreciate you making space to visit with us about all of these important things. Well, I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Once I get over my technology incompetence, it's fun to talk about relationships. And <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. McCarthy and his books and all the resources that he has available in the show notes. I'll put links to everything in there. He's also made available a couple of free chapters from his two of his books, and I'll put links to those as well. 
And he has an ongoing blog on Psychology Today that he mentioned that has a great amount of resources. He's just such a treasure trove of information and resources, I'm just telling you. I love reading his work, and it's just very sensible stuff that is so helpful for couples in any stage of their relationship. And as always, thank you so much for being here. I just love connecting with you every single week. I love to know what's helping you and the resources that you find useful in your own recovery. So drop me a line, shoot me a direct message or drop me a line on my website. I love hearing from my listeners. And you can always find more resources from me on my website, fromcrisis2connection.com. And I have past episodes of the podcast. I have online courses that are available for you anytime and my weekly relationship column. And I'm also super active on social media and love connecting with everyone there. Thanks so much for being here every single week. I can't thank my guests enough. I just have the most amazing guests and I'm so thankful for Dr. McCarthy and everyone who jumps on here on this podcast to offer help and resources. There are just a lot of great options out there and great discussions that we all need to be having. Thanks again for being here and I'll look forward to connecting with you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.